It's Matthew, <clears throat> Matthew 28, and I'll read from verse 16 to 20, uh, the, great, the Great Commission. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, uh, hopefully it's my friends working. Excellent. Good morning, everyone. Uh, kids, I should say to you at the start, I'm sorry, there is no kids talk today, but I do want you to pay very special attention to our baptism because this reminds us of all God's promises to us in Jesus. You know, uh, children are an incredible gift and blessing from God. And this morning, it's a wonderful blessing that we're able to celebrate the baptism of little Grace Josephine Hill. Grace is not only a gift to Keith and to Kate, but she is a gift to our whole church family as we see God's generosity and his loving creativity before us. But before we get Keith, Kate and Grace up here in a little bit, let me take a moment to explain what we're doing when we baptise someone. Now all of us are familiar with signs. We see them everywhere around us. Street signs, signs with maps and directions, even advertising signs. And, now, and, and all those signs, they point to something else, don't they? Uh, imagine this, we're driving along through the country, we see a sign that says kangaroos are about. Now the kangaroo sign is not a kangaroo, is it? It's not going to jump out in front of your car. But they point to real kangaroos in the area which very well might jump out in front of your car. And like these signs, baptism is a sign that points to something else. It points to a greater reality. And that's really helpful for us because it helps us think about a couple of things that baptism isn't. First, baptism is not about the water. This isn't magic water. There's nothing special about it. I got it out of the tap about half an hour ago. I did get warm water, for grace's sake, but that's the only thing about it. Second thing to know is that baptism doesn't save. It doesn't make grace a Christian. There's only one way to be saved, and that's by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's by trusting in Jesus. Baptism is not saying that grace is saved, or that she necessarily will be saved, or that she already trusts in Jesus. So why do we do baptism? Well, baptism is a sign that points to the promises which God has given us in the Lord Jesus. First, it's a sign that Jesus commanded that we do. As Keith read for us just a moment ago, before ascending into heaven, Jesus commanded his people to make disciples, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And as Christian families, we make disciples of our children, teaching them to trust 
and, and have faith in Jesus, sharing the gospel with them, teaching them to grow in repentance and faith and obedience. Keith and Kay are raising grace as a disciple of Jesus. Second, it's a sign of God's promise to wash away the sins of all those who trust in Jesus. A sign of the forgiveness which Jesus brought by his death on the cross for all who repent and believe. Third, it's a sign of God's promises that those who are united to Christ in faith receive all his benefits, including dying and rising with him, becoming co-heirs with him, being adopted as, his son, as God's sons and daughters, and being born again. Fourth, it's a sign that God promises to pour out the Holy Spirit on all those who believe. And that the Spirit He promised in the Old Testament is poured out on all those who trust in Jesus. And fifth, it's a sign of God's promise that we're part of God's covenant community, the church. This baptism is a sign that grace is part of the visible church, part of a community of people who love and trust in Jesus and will encourage grace and point her to Jesus as well. All these promises that God gives us, they are not just for us as adults who believe, but also for our children. As Peter said in Acts 2.39, for this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. See, just like he's done throughout history, God graciously includes our children in his covenant promises. And all his promises are for them as well as for us. So this morning, we baptise Grace as a sign that points to all of God's promises to her and to all of us who believe. And seeing these promises in baptism is actually helpful for all of us. See, we can be thankful for God's promises, that he takes us and our children to be his people. We can be reminded that just as grace contributes nothing to her baptism, none of our works contribute to our salvation in Jesus Christ. We can take this as an opportunity to examine our own lives, to see whether your life shows the reality that baptism points to. And if you have been straying away from faith in the Lord Jesus, take this as a call to return to him in repentance and in faith. And please, use this as an opportunity to be reminded to pray for grace and to pray for all of the children in our church family, that as they grow, they might grow as disciples of the Lord Jesus. Growing in repentance and faith, growing in their love for the Lord Jesus and their understanding of the gospel and persevering in faith in him. I'm going to ask Keith and Kate and Grace as well to come up the front now and join me. Come on, we'd be missing you if you weren't here. 
You know, because the baptism of infants rests on God's covenant of grace with believers and with their children, it requires faith in Jesus on the part of Grace's parents. So as Keith and Kate are bringing Grace to be baptised, they are declaring that they are a family of faith and declaring their hope that Grace will grow in the knowledge of and trust in Jesus. So Keith and Kate, I've got some questions for you now, and uh, the answer is I do, if the answer is yes. Uh, Keith and Kate, do you believe in one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? I do. Do you trust in the righteousness of Jesus Christ alone for your salvation? I do. Do you promise to teach Grace from the Scriptures how to trust in Christ as her Saviour, to pray for her, and to set her a godly example in your actions, that by God's grace she may be a faithful follower of our Lord Jesus Christ all of her days? May God bless you and give you the grace to be faithful to your promises. Uh, if you are able, would you please stand with me for a moment? Baptism lays special responsibilities on all of us as God's people. And so I'm going to ask you a question. And if you accept this responsibility, would you please respond together with the words, we do. Do you promise to play your part in teaching grace to love the Lord Jesus by your word and example and to encourage her to put her faith in Jesus as she grows in, in faith and in maturity. We, we do. Thank you. May God graciously enable us to accept this responsibility. Please take a seat. I'm going to take grace now, if she'll let me.
I'm getting such a lovely cuddle here, I'm not trying to Keith and Kate, I've got a gift for you as well, and for your family. Uh, I pray that this uh, book is a gift from our church family to your family. Uh, it's a story Bible that traces the biggest story of Jesus, who died for our sins and rose again as the conquering king to save us to be his people. It's something we've seen together this morning in Grace's Baptism, and may it be an encouragement to you and a help to you as you seek to disciple Grace in the uh, I'm going to pray now. Let's pray together for Keith and Kate and for Grace. Let's pray. Almighty and eternal God, who keeps covenant and shows mercy to a thousand generations of those who love and obey you, we thank you for the sign of baptism, which assures us that you are our God, and that you wash away our sins and renew our hearts by your Holy Spirit. As you've rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of your beloved Son, we pray that you would be pleased by your Spirit to bring Grace Josephine Hill to an understanding of your gift of new life. We pray that you would grant the inward reality to her which corresponds to the outward sign. We ask that the fruit of the Spirit's presence may appear in her life, and that you will help her to honour you as her Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ as her Saviour. Preserve her by your power against all the temptations of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Be her refuge and fortress in the trials of life. Give her strength to live the Christian life faithfully to the end. We ask that her name will be found in the Lamb's Book of Life, so that when she stands before you in glory, she will not be ashamed. We pray that you would bless Grace's home. Help Keith and Kate to bring her up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. May her brothers and sisters, Zoe, Ethan and Charlie, likewise point her to Jesus by their words and actions, as they too grow in faith and obedience. May grace be the means of drawing them all still closer to you and to each other. And Father, we pray that after this life is ended, we may all be brought to the everlasting joys of your heavenly home, whereat your Son, our Lord Jesus, lives and reigns eternally. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you guys, please take a seat. Thanks for being patient, Grace, you've done well. In Jesus, God shows his great grace to us and to our children. Now, we've seen that together now in Grace's baptism. And please do be encouraged to continue to pray for Grace and for her family, and for all the, all the kids that are part of our church family. Uh, we're going to sing together now about how we can be strong and courageous because God holds all his little ones safe in his arms. If you're able, please stand and let's sing together. And kids, you might like to come up the front now and help me with the actions because I think you'll know this one.
Good job, kids. You can go to St. John's Kids now. Thank you. We're going to come to God in prayer now together. Uh, Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you that you are a gracious, faithful and steadfast God. Although we were your enemies, rebels against you in our sin, you graciously acted to save a people for yourself. From the very first day mankind turned against you, you made promises to act and to save your people. You made promises to Abraham, to Israel, to David, and to us in the Lord Jesus. You are faithful and steadfast to keep all your promises, even sending your own son to suffer and die on the cross and rise again so that we can have new life in him. You will keep your promises always and forever. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that you graciously extend these promises to us, to our children, and to all who are far off. Please help us, Lord, to faithfully share and teach your promises to our children, raising them as disciples who trust in you, love you, and will serve you all their days. Please work in their hearts by your spirit that that may be the case. Please help us boldly share these promises with all those who are far off, with our workmates, our family, our friends, that they too may come to trust in Jesus and find new life in him. Give us courage and give us wise words for this task, Lord. We do even boldly ask ask that through this, you would bring three new people to faith and to join our church family. We pray for the needs of our church family, Lord. We lift up to you all those who are sick. We particularly pray for Les, Jackie, for all those recovering from COVID, those who are not listed there. We ask that you would bring them healing where it is your will, that you would comfort and strengthen them and give them endurance and hope. We pray for those who are grieving the loss of loved ones. Be their comfort and hope in this time, we pray. We particularly lift up to you the Moore family as they grieve the loss of a mum and a grandma. Lord, we ask your comfort for them, for the right family. We pray for those who are in care. We ask that you would sustain them and keep them, that you would keep their eyes fixed on Jesus and help them to keep growing in faith and in godliness. Father, we lift up to you other churches here in Toowoomba, and particularly this morning we pray for Eastgate Bible Church with the resignation of Steve, their pastor. Please help that church to continue to be a church where your word is taught and the gospel is proclaimed. Please give the elders and leaders wisdom to faithfully lead your people. We continue to pray for the Queensland Theological College. We thank you for what's been raised uh, so far. And Lord, we ask that through your people, you would generously provide all that the college needs to continue training gospel workers for the future. We pray, Lord, for those believers around the world who are suffering for their faith in Jesus. We pray particularly for believers in Afghanistan, which is now the most dangerous place in the world to follow you. 
We pray for your protection and provision for believers there. Please give them boldness and perseverance, we pray. We pray that you would bless the leaders of the Taliban with faith in the Lord Jesus. We pray that local partners supporting refugees would be filled with grace and love. May all your people never lose sight of the sure hope we have in Jesus and in all your promises to us in him. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to hear together from God's word now. We're going to read from 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Um, and Izzy's going to read for us. Thanks, Izzy. Follow along with me as I read 2 Corinthians 2 to 16, 7, 2 to 16. Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before, you are in our hearts, to die together, to live together. I am acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. As he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice more still. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what ignination, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you in uh, in what not for sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. And beside our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater, as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. Thanks, Izzy. Let me encourage you to keep your Bibles open so that you can follow along as we work through this part of God's Word. I'm going to pray and ask that God would help us as we work through. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Word. Please help us to understand it. 
Please work in our hearts through it that we might grow in faith in the Lord Jesus and grow to be more like him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Josh, can I see you in my office, please? I look up from the tax return that I've been working on to see my supervisor leaning out of her office door. My heart sinks as I notice that a file that I worked on open on her desk. Her red pen is in hand. She's got a big list next to her of everything that needs fixing in my work. Here we go. She starts the list. One of the formulas hasn't added correctly. The total is wrong. I've misspelled something on one of the pages of the tax return and my calculations about capital gains were off on one of the items. How do I respond to this correction? Do I get defensive? Forcefully explaining all of the reasons why I did this and that. I'm right after all writes this letter to call them to stick with the gospel and to stick with their partnership with him. We saw that last week. Paul said his heart is wide open to the Corinthians. He pleads with them to reject the false teachers and be reconciled with him. And that's where he starts this passage too. See his love for them in verse 2. Make room in your hearts for us. We've wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. We've taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to live and to die together. See, Paul has acted towards them with integrity. He hasn't wronged them by being overly harsh. He hasn't corrupted anyone by false teaching that leads them away from the truth. He hasn't taken advantage of anyone for his own gain. No, Paul loves them. Deeply. They're in his heart. He's absolutely committed to them and to their good, even to die together and to live together. See what this love means for Paul in verse 4. I'm acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I'm filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. Paul's proud of them. He's comforted by God's work in their lives. Even in the midst of affliction, he's full of great joy because of them. But his love also means that he's bold towards them. Paul loves them enough to tell them hard things. To confront them when they do the wrong thing. In fact, this whole letter is that. Paul is correcting them, calling them to be faithful to the gospel and to their partnership with him. But that's a sticking point for the Corinthians. Paul has just written them, before this one, a hard letter. Is that really love? Now, the letter that we have as two Corinthians is actually at least Paul's fourth letter to the, to the church in Corinth. A little confusing, I know. One Corinthians is actually Paul's second letter. And between one and two Corinthians, there was a third letter, a hard letter, a letter confronting the Corinthians about what they were doing wrong and calling them to repent and to act. But even that letter Paul wrote because he loves them. 
We saw that back in chapter 2. Paul said, For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. That letter was hard for Paul to write. He didn't want to hurt them. He was worried. He was writing to them because he loved them. And that meant he was a little worried about these hard words that he had to say. See what he says in chapter 7, verse 8. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. Paul knows his letter was hard for them. He knows it upset them, it grieved them, but he doesn't regret it. But he did for a little while. That sounds normal and human, right? Paul was a little worried, a little unsure. But he doesn't regret it because ultimately it was for their good. These were hard words that the Corinthians needed to hear. And Paul loved them enough to say them. But at the end of the day, they weren't worse off because Paul wrote a hard letter to them. It was for their good. Now, we're going to come back to their repentance in a moment because that's important. But for now, just notice that Paul's love for the Corinthians means he's willing to say hard things to them. His love led to words which grieved them for a little while. But ultimately, it was for their good. And this makes sense, right? Sometimes loving others will mean saying hard things to them, saying things that might upset them. If my kids are running full pelt towards a busy road, I don't say silent because I don't want to hurt their feelings. I yell out at the top of my lungs, stop, turn around, you can't go there. The kids might get upset, they might even cry, but it's for their good because the road is dangerous. And we need this as we live together as God's people too. Real, genuine love for one another will mean being willing to say hard things sometimes. It will mean speaking the truth in love to each other. It will mean confronting sin and calling people to turn away from it. Sin is deadly. It's dangerous. As dangerous as the road. And if we truly love one another, we'll say something. It will mean being honest with others when we are hurt by something that they've done. It will mean being brave enough to go and ask someone if we have done something wrong against them and then being willing to hear their answer. Genuine love for one another means we'll be willing to say hard things when they need to be said. Now, of course, we are going to do this Graciously, gently, as kindly as we can. And part of this means that we need to be patient with one another. We need to recognise that sometimes change is slow and takes a long time. Sometimes apostles have to write four letters to churches. But loving one another will mean being willing to speak. And, and this might be the harder thing, being willing to hear. 
Because if we are a church family that is willing to gently and graciously speak the truth to one another in love, it will mean eventually someone will speak to you about something. We need to be willing to hear it, even if it grieves us. Which brings us to the next point. Paul rejoices because for the Corinthians, this is a grief that leads to repentance. Let's read verse 9 again. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Correction always hurts. It will always sting. But Paul says there's two different kinds of grief that correction can produce. One of those is a worldly grief. This is the grief that responds by being hurt, by being offended, maybe being sullen and offensive, maybe being angry or passive aggressive, maybe genuinely sad about the wrong you've done. But this grief doesn't lead to real change. It just nurses its hurts and carries on as before. You know, I think there's a great illustration of this kind of grief in Matthew 19. Remember, a rich young man, he comes to Jesus and he asks what he has to do to have eternal life. Jesus says, keep the commandments. Which ones, he says. So Jesus lists some of them. I've done them all from my youth, he says. But Jesus says to him, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor and come, follow me. Now, Jesus isn't saying that you can't own anything if you follow him. He's bringing targeted correction to this young man. This man thought he'd kept God's commands, but he loved his wealth more than he loved God. He loved being rich. And Jesus nails him right between the eyes. How does the man respond? It says he went away sorrowful because he had great possessions. Jesus' correction cuts this man right to the heart. But his grief doesn't lead to repentance. It doesn't lead to change. He doesn't see his need and follow Jesus. He goes away sad. His is a worldly grief that leads to death. That's a consequence of holding on to sin. Sin always leads to death. It promises much, but it ruins and destroys. Ultimately, if we refuse to repent, to turn away from our sin and turn to God, then we will face death. That is the punishment of sin. But there's another kind of grief Paul talks about. A godly grief. A kind of grief that doesn't lead to death. It leads to life. Now, this is a grief that leads to repentance. Now, repentance, it's one of those churchy words. It means to turn around. And there's two sides to that. It means to turn away from sin, away from living life our own way, away from ruling our own lives with God, without God. And it means to turn to God, to look to him for help, to cry out to him in faith, to turn to him as our rightful ruler. J.I. Packer, he has this really helpful description of what true repentance includes. 
He says it includes realistic recognition that we have wronged God. Regretful remorse at having dishonoured God. Reverent requesting of God's pardon, that's turning to God. Resolute renunciation of sin, that's turning away from sin. Requisite restitution to those we have hurt. That is real action to make things right. And yes, I've stolen that from Gary Miller's commentary, if you're reading that along. See, godly grief, it responds to correction with this kind of repentance. By turning away from sin and turning to God. And this repentance, it leads to salvation without regret, enjoying God's forgiveness and grace, being saved to be, by him to be his people. And we can see that here in this chapter of Corinthians. They recognised that they'd done the wrong thing. They were grieved at having dishonoured God and let Paul down. And they were eager to make things right, the requisite restitution. Look at what Paul says in verse 11. For you foresee what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourself innocent in the matter. Their repentance has resulted in action. That's the result of godly grief. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Now, we cannot lose sight of this. See, repentance is a vital part of the Christian life. I want to say to you first, it's the start of the Christian life. It's our right response to the good news of Jesus. When Jesus began preaching, his message was, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. See, the good news that Jesus Christ is God's promised king who died on the cross for us, has risen from the dead and now rules over all the world as Lord of all, is news that demands repentance. The gospel is a cutting word of correction to you and I. It assumes that you and I are sinners. We are rebels against God. We have broken his commands. We've not done the good we should have done. We've rejected his rightful rule and we've done things our own way. We aren't good enough to be accepted by God. We are his enemies and we are helpless. We can't make this right ourselves. Without Jesus, you are God's enemy and you will face God's righteous judgment. That stings. It should hurt. It should grieve us. But the right response is not to feel sorry for ourselves. The right response is repentance. To turn away from sin and to turn to God in faith. To accept that Jesus died for our sins so that we can be right with God through faith in him. To acknowledge his rightful rule over our lives and to live with him as our Lord. Have you done that has the gospel grieved you has it produced in you that godly grief has that led you to repent to turn to God in faith if not 
Today is that day. Don't just go away from here this morning like that rich young man with a worldly grief that leads to death. Turn to God. Trust in him. That leads to salvation. I would love to talk to you more about that after the service if you'd like. But for all of us, repentance is not just the start of the Christian life. It's not a one and done type deal. I love the way Martin Luther put it. He said that the whole of the Christian life is a life of repentance. It begins as we hear the gospel and turn to God in faith by trusting in Jesus. But it continues as we keep recognising sin, keep repenting, keep growing to be more like Jesus. The whole of our Christian lives are meant to be lives of repentance. That's what happened to the Corinthians, right? They've already believed, but they're tolerating sin. So Paul writes them to correct them. They hear the correction, they grieve, they repent, and they're eager to make things right. So you repenting. When someone points out your sin and you receive correction, how do you respond? Of course it will upset you. It always produces grief. But is it a godly grief that leads to repentance? The kind of repentance that means genuinely seeking to turn away from sin and to grow. The kind of repentance that is quick to run and apologise. The kind of repentance that is willing to do whatever it needs to do to make things right. That's the right response to correction. When was the last time you repented like that? When was the last time you recognised sin in your life and were grieved by it? When was the last time you confessed to God and actively sought to turn away from sin? If your answer to that question is, I can't remember, then repent. There is always more growing for us to do. Stop mucking about with sin. Ask that God would convict you by his Holy Spirit and repent. Maybe you might even need to ask another believer who you trust if there's anything that they see in your life that you should repent of. Maybe your answer to my question is, it is all I ever seem to do. Maybe you're discouraged. Maybe you feel like there's never any real progress and you're back to the same thing again. I want to say to you, be encouraged. The fact that the Spirit is working in you, that your godly grief is leading to repentance, that is a good thing. God is working and it will lead to salvation without regret. Which brings us to our last point. Genuine repentance is repentance that leads to joy. That's what this whole chapter is about. This isn't a sombre downcast chapter. This is a chapter that's full of rejoicing at every turn. Because real repentance leads to joy. First, it leads to joy for the one repenting. Because it leads to salvation without regret. To joyful eternal life with God as his sons and daughters. Sin promises much, but it can never deliver. At the end of the day, it only leads to death. But repentance leads to salvation, to life, to joy, to the full life with God that God designed us for. 
Their, their repentance is meant to show this to the Corinthians. Look in verse 12. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. This is a weird thing to say. Paul saying the reason he wrote wasn't mainly about the one who was doing the wrong thing, even though he wanted them corrected. And he's saying it wasn't mainly about the victim, which in this case was possibly Paul himself. Paul says that the reason he wrote is so that they can see their earnestness for him. So that they can see the evidence of God's work in their lives and their love for Paul by their repentance. Paul wants them to repent so they can see God's work in their lives. So they renew their relationship with him and so that they can rejoice in God's work in them. Their repentance leads to joy for them. Repentance is painful. It hurts It means admitting we're wrong. It means taking steps to make things right. It means making a radical break with sin. But it's good for you. In fact, it leads to our joy. Beyond the joy that we can ever gain from sin. Repentance is good for you. But more than that, it also leads to joy for others. It led to joy for Paul. Paul was struggling, fearful, suffering, waiting for Titus in Macedonia. But when Titus comes, he rejoices. He's comforted, even in the midst of his suffering. Why? Look in verse 6. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me so that I rejoiced still more. Even in the midst of his suffering, which is great, Paul rejoices because he sees the repentance of the Corinthians. He hears of their longing, their mourning at their wrong, their zeal for Paul. He rejoices because of their repentance. We read that before in verse 9 as well. He rejoices not because they were grieved, but because they were grieved into repenting. And it's not just Paul. Titus rejoices in their repentance as well. Look at verse 13. Therefore we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. Titus is full of rejoicing and love for the Corinthians because he's seen God working in their lives. He has seen their repentance. And all of this gives Paul great confidence about his future relationships with the Corinthians. Even as he pleads with them, as he corrects them, as he writes them in their difficult relationship, amidst all of it, he's confident because God is working in their lives. Look at verse 16. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. Repentance leads to joy. For us and for those around us who see God working in our lives. Who see us growing to be more and more like Jesus and who rejoice in God's work. 
So I want to say to you, repent. It's good for you. Keep repenting. Keep turning away from sin and turning to God. It leads to your joy and to salvation without regret. Not just in the future when we are with Jesus forever, but now. As we experience that abundant, joy-filled life that God has for us in Jesus. So repent. Don't put it off. Don't ignore sin. Don't flirt with it. It will only hurt you. But repentance is for your good. And I have a conflict of interest here. I want you to repent because I get to rejoice in it too. And it's for the good of others. As those around you get to see God's work in you. So it means all of us should be looking for God's work in each other's lives. We should be quick to rejoice in the repentance of others. Quick to praise God for what he's done and be comforted. Don't be jealous because God seems to be working in the lives of others more than you. Don't feel jealous because someone else has seen progress that you've been desiring for years. God is still working in your life. And the repentance of others shows how he really is working in all of us. So let's rejoice in each other as we repent. And let's encourage each other in it. Part of that might be being honest with each other about where God has led us to repent of sin. I want to say to you, if you see this growth in someone else, why not encourage them today after the service? Say, I am thanking God for what he has done in your life. I didn't mention the best response when my supervisor calls me into her office to receive her correction, make the changes and get on with it. To let her correction drive me to the grief that leads to change. That's not just the way to be a good accountant. That's the way to real life, to salvation without regret. As we experience love that leads to grief, willing to say hard things and hear hard things from each other. As we respond with that godly grief that leads to repentance. And as that repentance leads to great joy for us and for those around us. That's the best response to correction. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word here in 2 Corinthians. Lord, we are challenged as the gospel, the good news of Jesus and your word corrects us. Lord, it is right that we respond to your word this morning with grief. Please do your work of convicting us and stirring our hearts now to see where we have fallen short and to grieve it. But please, Lord, let this be a godly grief that leads to repentance, that would help us and stir us to turn away from sin and turn to you because of your Holy Spirit at work in us. And please, Lord, give us great joy as we repent and as we see those around us repent too. And we look forward to that salvation without regret. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.